Kia ora and welcome to the Coronavirus Podcast. My name is Brian and I'm a trainee intern at Middlemore Hospital this year. This means that I'm in my last year of medical study and I'll be a doctor at the end of the year, which is actually, quite frankly, terrifying. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Stay safe, take care and please be kind to one another. Kia ora, Brian. You stay safe too. We hope your final year of medical school goes well. We're wishing you all the best for the year to come. Welcome to the Coronavirus Podcast. I'm Indira Stewart. Please keep sending in your introductions for our show. We love hearing from you. You can do that for free through RNZ's Vox Pop app on your smartphone. It's simple to download and it's easy to use. You may have heard of some unusual symptoms of COVID-19. There's everything from skin rashes, even to strokes. Thankfully, the more extreme of these symptoms are rare, but later this episode, we're talking to Dr. Michael Mays, a respiratory physician and senior lecturer at Otago Medical School, and he'll be explaining more about these unusual symptoms to look out for. But first, let's get to the headlines. We've had one more death from COVID-19 this weekend. The victim was George Hollings, a man in his 80s from the Rosewood Rest Home Cluster. Mr Holling's children released a statement praising the staff at Burwood Hospital, saying they couldn't speak more highly for the care their dad received. There were an additional eight cases of COVID-19 reported over the weekend. There were six on Saturday and two on Sunday. There are still 16 significant clusters in the country, although three of those clusters are now considered to be closed because there's no longer any apparent transmission of the virus in those groups. But while the number of new cases has stayed in the single digits all week, epidemiologist Dr Michael Baker says it's still critically important to maintain social distance and to get tested even if you only have very minor symptoms. I think we've all been brought up on this soldier on message and that we're kind of tough and stoic, and that just has to go. Um, so if you are sick at all, you have to stay at home. And uh, if, you, if you have any of these symptoms, get tested. The police are renewing warnings that they'll crack down on mass gatherings and parties. Over the weekend, which was our first weekend at Level 3, police received almost 700 reports of parties being held and they took action against 112 people. Now, since Level 3 began on Tuesday, there have been 1,200 reports of breaches altogether. Now, that's according to the Acting Assistant Commissioner, Scott Fraser. Police are warning that this behaviour could waste the sacrifices that everyone's made over the last five weeks. This morning, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern maintained New Zealand was ready to move to alert Level 3 last week, But with the excitement of new, slight freedoms, people must remember what the expectations are and that the fight against COVID-19 is not over yet. We do not want to have a second wave. We're called level three, a waiting room of sorts. This is the place where, you know, after a cycle of transmission, we then use the data, the best data we have, uh, to assess uh, um, whether or not we have any unexplained cases, cases that cause a cause for concern. We want that reassurance, and I know the public do as well. And so it's very important that while we're in this waiting room, we don't act like we've won already. And 
again, of that team of 5 million, the vast majority of people are complying. We just need to keep reminding those who don't that they let the side down when they act that way. In economic news, Cabinet says it will allow so-called shovel-ready projects to largely bypass the Resource Management Act. New legislation would remove the ability of the public and councils to weigh in and hand that power over to small panels of experts chaired by an Environment Court judge. Environment Minister David Parker says this legislation will only apply to major projects that will be able to generate large numbers of jobs. We have to be a bit careful that we don't swamp these panels with too many projects and so there's a gatekeeper at the top of the fence, if you like, who's the Minister for the Environment, who by statutory regulation authorises the projects that can go through this process. Others will still go through normal council processes. Another economic announcement came on Friday. A new government-funded interest-free loan scheme for small to medium-sized businesses. Finance Minister Grant Robertson says firms employing 50 or fewer people can access up to $100,000 interest-free for a year. Now, if you need a bit longer to pay that back, the interest will then be bumped up to 3% for the following two years. We're backing these businesses because we know how important they are to our economy. We also know that our small and medium enterprises have not been able to access the support that they need from other sources. The chair of the OECD's Board of Business, Phil O'Reilly, says the scheme strikes the right balance in supporting businesses. You can either lend some money to businesses and and run the risk that they'll fall over and won't pay it back in some way, or the business just falls over anyway and doesn't pay tax for the next 10 years. You know, so there's a there's always going to be a balancing act. The challenge, of course, is that the 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 the, uh, the loan package has come out very late. I mean, it's now six or seven weeks since we all knew that we might go into lockdown. So you know, you've already had potentially a lot of businesses that would have been viable six or seven weeks ago no longer viable. And in that context, it's a very good thing the government's done, but I think they've acted pretty late here. New Zealand's success in containing coronavirus has been matched across the ditch in Australia, which now has less than a 1,000 active cases of the virus. The New Zealand Foreign Minister Winston Peters and the Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison have been discussing reopening travel across the Tasman. Speaking to Jim Mora on RNZ's Sunday morning programme, international economist and author Steve Keane and former Reserve Bank economist Michael Riddell both backed that proposal. In the post, uh, post-coronavirus world, I think we need to be trying to make things as regional uh, rather than global. And in that sense, Australia and New Zealand are a natural region. And the, the one of the industries which will suffer the most, of course, is going to be tourism. You simply will not allow tourism from places, parts of the world that may have the virus, those that don't. So that was just destroy tourism, certainly because the United States, Europe, Africa, parts of Asia, it just isn't going to be feasible. But if Australia and New Zealand, as they both seem on track to do, both eliminate the virus, then it makes eminent sense to say, well, let's allow the tourism between those two countries. And Michael, do you agree with that? Oh, generally, I mean, I'm, I wouldn't be as optimistic as some of those industry people about just how much recovery mm. will get as a result of it. I mean, I think in both sides of the Tasman, there are big increases in unemployment at the moment. People will be scared of travel and uneasy about the risks for some time. But as a general direction, you know, countries that have eliminated the virus, uh, yes, um, let's move towards that um, uh, expanded bubble notion. It's still only been a matter of months since COVID-19 exploded onto the global stage. So it's not surprising that we're still learning new things about this virus. 
We all know the disease causes respiratory problems, but over recent weeks, a number of studies have been published reporting some unusual symptoms. They range from skin rashes and digestive problems at the more minor end to more serious symptoms like strokes. Dr Michael Mays, who is a respiratory physician and a senior lecturer at Otago Medical School, says it's important to remember that many of these more unusual symptoms of COVID-19 are incredibly rare and some may not be directly linked to the virus at all. Dr Mays says the most common of the unusual symptoms is a loss of smell and taste. We know that most people get um, sort of classic flu symptoms with um, fevers and, and um, muscle aches, uh, but also the snotty nose that blocks up and causes sort of pain and, and fullness around behind the sinuses and sort of around under the eyes. And so in those people, of course, it makes some sense that we lose our sense of smell, our, our sense of taste, and we're probably all familiar with that when, for example, we get the flu or something, we often uh, find that our, our taste is, is affected and our smell is affected. But the thing that's a wee bit different about the coronavirus is that even in that group of people who don't get that classic sort of blocked up, clogged up nose and sinus area, uh, quite a, a large proportion of them still manage to lose their sense of smell and lose their sense of taste. Have you seen a lot of, like some of the more uncommon symptoms that you're, you're referencing here, have you seen a lot of those yourself? I'm very pleased to not be um, a particularly expert in this um, because we've been very lucky uh, not to see too many cases. So we certainly have seen people in hospital with coronavirus, but by no means the numbers that we've seen overseas. And so, um, as I say, I'm quite pleased to say that my experience so far has been pretty limited and we've seen a single digit number of patients so far in our hospital. So the sense of smell is something that we, uh, we have seen, although not a lot of, um, but some of the rarer ones that we're gonna to come to certainly I have not seen. I, I had seen some, some news reports, and, and this is uh, in places around the world outside of New Zealand, where some most likely children, most commonly children, were getting symptoms like COVID toes. It kind of looks like bunions on, on toes, and that was more commonly seen in children and some adults. Is that something that you guys have seen much of, or, or have you been looking into the reports of those as well? It's certainly not something that I've seen or noticed in the patients that here, um, but it is it's been reported um, overseas, yeah. Um, and the quite what's causing it, I think, still needs to be fully worked out. But it's perhaps a pattern of some things that we're seeing that, that relate perhaps to inflammation and damage to the, to the blood vessels. At this stage, I'd say it's been, um, from my understanding of what's been reported, a pretty uncommon thing. It's not something that, that people are seeing in most patients, um, for instance, with coronavirus. And it would be the same for some of the other rashes that have been described. There have been some sort of itchy rashes, um, as well as these sort of purple nodules that have been popping up on the ends of the fingers and toes. We've probably still got more to learn about these. And is it unusual for a virus to cause such a wide variety of symptoms? No, I don't think it is. Um, we tend to think about the most common symptoms and the, the classic presentations of things. But uh, if we think back on other infections that we've seen uh, over the last few decades, uh, they also have affected uh, different parts of the body. Uh, if we think back to the um, so-called swine flu of around 10 years ago, um, again, it's, we think of it as being a, um, a respiratory infection, so snotty noses, muscle aches, coughs, um, breathlessness. Um, but again, in that, uh, with that virus, uh, diarrhoea and stomach upset was also pretty common. And then with the other ones that have sort of struck emerging infections that have struck the news recently, like Ebola, dengue, Zika, 
these are all viruses that have that have caused more than one organ in the body to be infected or affected. And, and is the virus directly causing some of the symptoms that you've mentioned, or are they effects of something else? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think we're, talk, we're looking probably at multiple mechanisms. So the virus gets into the cells through a particular receptor on the outside of the cells called the angiotensin-converting enzyme 2 receptor, or ACE2, as it's commonly um, referred to. And these um, uh, receptors are most common in the lungs, in the heart, um, in the gut, and in the kidney. But we're also seeing effects um, that are quite prominent in tissues and organs that don't have a lot of these receptors. A good example might be the loss of smell, where the um, neurons or nerve cells um, in the smelling nerve, the olfactory nerve, don't seem to have a lot of these receptors, but they somehow seem to be getting affected. Similar if we look at the um, effects, there's been a, um, a lot of press recently about um, uh, young people in their 40s and 50s um, in the US having strokes um, due to the coronavirus. With these strokes, it appears that there's uh, clots in the reasonably large arteries in the brain uh, in people who've tested positive for the coronavirus. And so um, there's a thought that perhaps um, these clots uh, are related to the coagulation system or the clotting system being turned on by the coronavirus. Part of it, as we see, is the direct virus effect on the cells. And part of it is the way that it's affecting the immune system, potentially turning on the clotting um, and, um, and turning on the immune system so that the effects of the immune system sometimes are causing the damage to the, uh, to the organs. It, can, it, it sounds quite frightening in terms of um, looking at ways to treat the virus when it's causing all these other, other impacts in your body or in somebody's body. We've seen some rapid evolution in the way that the virus is being treated, but what are some of the new methods that are being used, especially considering that we are learning new things about this virus every day? We're thinking about... Um sort of direct viral treatments. As you're probably aware, there's been several things that have been in the press um, as treatments for the virus. Hydroxychloroquine, which was um, uh, promoted by uh, Donald Trump, uh, that I think took off quite rapidly, particularly in the US, and gained FDA approval for use. And, but at the same time, it's been the subject of clinical trials that are trying to determine if, it's, you know, if it actually works or not. And I think you know, within the next few months, our practice will be quite heavily informed by trials such as those that will tell us about whether these direct antiviral agents um, are active or not. And that goes the same for the um, uh, other drug that's had a lot of hype, Rindisivir, other antiviral agents such as uh, Lopinavir, Ritonavir, uh, and for uh, infusing the plasma of people who've recovered from the virus in the hope that their antibodies um, will help uh, kill the virus and improve um, people's outcomes. Going alongside that, though, um, we're sort of learning as we go about um, the best way of supporting people. And particularly, there's been a, you know, a lot of thought about when to give people oxygen, how much oxygen to give them, uh, and whether they might need extra support, um, particularly such as being um, put on a ventilator to help them breathe. It's, it's not in some ways that there are, um, there's anything particularly new. It's more about how we use the tools that we've got when it we know that people on the ventilator, it, it's really helpful at, at um, taking away some of the effort people need to do to breathe if they're having to work really hard to breathe. Uh, and a, it's also a good way of giving people uh, enough oxygen so that their oxygen levels in the blood are good. But we also know because the ventilator um, works to breathe in a totally different way from normal, it can cause damage to the lung. So I think, in, particularly in the US early on, 
And in Italy, they had a very low threshold for putting people on ventilators on the thought that delaying it might cause more damage to the lung and, and cause more damage to the overall person because they had longer periods with low oxygen levels or longer periods when they're working really hard to breathe. Over time, I think that that pendulum is just swinging a little bit back the other way so that people um, are not racing, racing them onto the ventilators because they're saying, well, perhaps if we can hold out a, bit a, a little longer, then we won't get the damage to the lung from the ventilator itself. And I expect that this, this pendulum will probably continue to swing backwards and forwards a little bit as people find, find the right place for it. When it comes to treat, treatments like uh, hydrochloroquine, which you mentioned, which has now been approved in the US, and that is still under clinical trials, are we going to continue to see those treatments change? Yeah, absolutely. I, like I'm sure we will be. Um, I probably was correct you slightly in saying in the US, um, hydroxychloroquine has been uh, approved for use if you can't be in a clinical trial. So the FDA is still um, recommending that it's used in trials and not um, prescribed um, with, outside of the context of a trial whenever possible. The only way really to move forward is, is proper controlled trials of these experimental treatments because it's really hard otherwise to know what would have happened without it. And so many of these earlier reports that we've seen um, in the medical journals so far uh, have um, either not been controlled trials, um, but have perhaps shown that there is some suggestion of benefit, or um, have been controlled trials that are very small and perhaps too small to, to really know if they're going to work or not. Over the next few months, possibly a bit longer, we're going to see, start to see the results of the larger trials that are more conclusive coming through. And as we get these, I think we'll get a really clear steer on which treatments are effective and which treatments aren't. And those that aren't effective will be able to be pushed aside. Those that are effective will be able to be used. But then that will allow the next level of trials to begin and sort of springboard um, uh, towards you know, even better treatment as we, as we move. And it's likely to be that these steps are going to be incremental and, you know, and then small gains rather than seeing um, a sudden new miracle drug appear. Dr Mays, some people are still pointing out the average annual death toll for seasonal influenza is still higher than the coronavirus. What, what do you make of that? Yeah, I think we need to um, just reflect a little bit on, on um, uh, exponential growth and, and how this might affect uh, our interpretation of the death toll. If you'd been talking to me in January and we'd had this conversation, you would have said, oh, look, coronavirus, it's not so bad. It's only killed you know, a thousand people. And, and so if we, we project that over 12 months, we might see 12,000 people. Of course, if we fast forward a few months, we can see that the, the death toll from coronavirus has risen exponentially. And that's despite pretty dramatic moves, not just in New Zealand, but all around the world. And so I'd predict that um, uh, before the end of the year, we're, we're several fold higher than that of the seasonal influenza. The thing we've got to realise, of course, is that the coronavirus um, uh, mortality is very much based on the number of reported cases. And we know that um, they're unlikely to, to be catching everybody who's dying of the disease. And that's even in countries like Europe and the US, um, where uh, there's very good systems of, of counting. But um, uh, if you go to countries where health systems are less robust and um, the ability to test is, uh, is not so easy, then it's likely there's going to be a lot of deaths that aren't recorded. That was Dr Michael Mays, Senior Lecturer at Otago Medical School. 
Now that's all from us this episode. We will be back in your ears tomorrow. Do take care. Kia kaha. Mā te wā. The Coronavirus Podcast is presented by me, Indira Stewart. It's produced by William Ray, Jesse Chang, Sonia Sly and Katie Gossett. Our sound engineer is Adrian Holley. The executive producer is Tim Watkin. You can subscribe to the Coronavirus Podcast anywhere and it's free. Just go to the podcast and series page at rnz.co.nz. Thank you.